0: Today we have an extra special guest, somebody I've been wanting on the podcast for a while now. His name is Sebastian Morton. He produces as Roca Sound. He is a Grammy-nominated composer, producer, remixer. He is definitely one of today's most eclectic and innovative musicians in the LA scene, both with major label artists producing and remixing for them. As far as film and composition, he's worked on TV shows like Young Sheldon, The Oroville, Mr. Robot films like Robocop, Houdini, Iron Man 2, as well as the SpongeBob movie. Sebastian has worked with some amazing artists such as Seal, Sting, Fat Joe, Ricky Martin, Rick James, Counting Crows, Shakira, Cascade, Santana, Enrique Iglesias, and the list keeps going. A lot of good stuff in this episode. Before we dive in, just wanted to let you know if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, you will be the first to get new episodes and other free downloads and Ableton packs and devices I'm sending out. If you want to join, go to liveproducersonline.com slash newsletter. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, please leave a like and review if you don't hate the podcast. Much love. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you check out links in the show notes to give Sebastian a follow. And without wasting time, let's jump into this episode. Thanks for joining the podcast again. And... Thank you. I think I might have I think I might have met you for like two seconds really briefly at East West Studios for Luke twenty eighteen. Were you
1: there? I don't think I was there. No, not that one. I was at a couple of things, but maybe I was. Maybe you're a doppelganger. Maybe. I don't think I was in that one. No. I was at a couple of the unveilings and some parties and stuff and some NAM stuff, but I don't think I think I missed that one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it was a cool it was a cool experience. So, I'm wondering if they'll ever do another loop in the US or at least in the next 5 years or so. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, they've done it in Berlin, I think for for a while. I think
1: they've only done it once in the US, right? Yeah, but I mean just like like here I get invited to the artists uh being an artist of theirs, just the artists meetups and stuff, and there's so many users like just in LA alone. That I'm sure, yeah. like, if you took the whole U.S. plus whoever flew in, it would be, like, mass. Yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah.
1: Although, it would be a good excuse to go to Berlin. Have you ever been over there?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you gotta go. It's amazing. It's on the list. It's on the bucket list. What did you do in Berlin when you were there? Like, touristy or work-wise? I
1: mean, either way. Um, Well, I actually went there because... Um, one of my good friends was the director of uh, Native Instruments. Oh, cool! So I kind of went there, visit him, kind of do some native stuff. I w- I'm also their artist, so just kind of did some fun stuff, unveiling new products, things like that. And then I got to like just hang out and watch amazing electronic music. And it's a great city, very very cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, it's like the techno capital of the world and obviously Ableton's there. So many other larger companies too.
1: Yeah. Did SoundCloud start in Berlin or did I make that up in my head? Well, they started in Germany, but I'm not sure yeah. if they started there. Native and Ableton Yeah. are like the two giants. Ooh. Who else? I, f- I think like like some boutique companies that make cool synths. Yeah. Waldorf isn't from there, but they're close. Oh. It's actually a big film music hub too now. I've heard that. Yeah, like like Nathan McKay, who's like the uh composer for industry for HBO is there. And uh so is the Oscar winner um for The Joker, Hilder. She's there. So a lot of cool, like very eclectic artists there. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. You have a you have a pretty interesting list of
0: credentials as far as like film Because I don't know, a lot of people I've interviewed on the podcast or people I've just met in general, it seems like they typically either live on the side of working with artists in the studio world, or they're more focused on like TV and film. But very rarely do I see, in my own experience, like people doing a ton of both. And you are one of those rare exceptions of people who have done a lot of both with major artists and in the film world. Maybe because I'm older. (laughs) (laughs)
1: so like I've been able to jump around a little more um well no it really is kind of because uh I think I jumped into film from having worked on a lot of records so it seems like as of now I do more film than actual records but yes I, I try to keep my you know hands in both in both games it really is kind of coexisting now, though, with artists, you know, like, like Junkie XL and, and Trent Reznor and even Nathan McKay, who I just mentioned, you know, there's countless electronic music producers or even DJs that still tour or still have their bands. And they also do like, uh, you know, Marcus Mumford did Ted Lasso. It's, uh, interesting. Like, I think a lot of that, those worlds are kind of mixing. Mm -hmm. i came into it because i was more of a music electronic music producer i kind of come from not like the fame and glory of like a touring guy like junkie excel or something but more like you know more of a studio nerd who specializes in synthesis and all that and i happened to study film score you know so at at the time, which was around 2010, I think, when I kind of really got into it, none of these guys were doing this stuff. It was in- very like, you know, the big guys are touring and doing festivals and, and, and do, making records, and then the film scorers are the orchestral guys, and yeah, they kind of just have ghost producers under them, or they hire people or whatever. And I came in a little bit more like, you know, somebody who was almost like a Brian Eno coming in to mess the sound up of traditional orchestral composers. You yeah. know, that's, that's one of my friends who, you know, first hired me was like, yeah, I kind of feel like you're my producer. and So I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I guess, I guess it is kind of like that. Yeah. I saw a video
0: you posted on your YouTube channel, I don't know, two years ago. It was talking about a lot of directors who have lived in that more traditional classical orchestral world are now more than ever seeking to kind of create a hybrid with with more of a modern approach whenever that looked like like with a a blend of electronic production some of that more sonic sound digital sound blended with that analog orchestral transient type of feel
1: yes yeah and i think that mostly stems from hans zimmer because you know hans is I mean, his his he, he has remote control productions, which is a massive conglomerate of studios in Santa Monica where there's lots of film composers. But here here's the thing, a lot of people think that it's like a factory, and that's that's where they get it wrong. Um, it's not like Hans is sitting in Malibu sipping piña coladas and everyone's doing his scores. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of people but they kind of make him sound like that. Like he kind yeah, of right. just comes in once in a while and goes like, yeah, that's great. Send it. It's actually like a lot of sound designers, producers, synth guys have like their station. And then they all kind of make incredible loop libraries or or it's almost like if Heaviosity made you a sound pack for every movie you make, you know, instead of just using damage. It's like, imagine if they were at your beck and call and you said, hey. I'm working on the new Chris Nolan movie for, you know, I'm working on Batman, whatever. I need the coolest sounds on earth, dark, distorted, incredible, go for it. It's like he has five or six people doing that. And then he gets fed this new palette per project. And that's kind of where the Spitfire audio stuff kind of branched off of when they started seeing like, oh, I see. So it's not like you have a bunch of ghost producers using libraries and then you put your name on it. It's that you put your name on it and then you make incredible libraries for your own project and then you start off as as that being your pout. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of where I came in when directors started, you know, seeing like, okay, cool, we need this to sound different. We need this to sound... Modern. We need to sound punchy. Yeah. We don't want the orchestra at the stage at Abbey Road playing timpanis and bombos. You know, like yeah. it, that's not what Hansa sound like. You know, sure. but they don't know why it sounds like because by the time the director comes in to a Zimmer score, he's already mocked up hours of music. So they didn't. They don't actually see the contact session of the original sound. They just hear the final cue. Demo. Yeah. Which is never a demo. Yeah. <laughs> when it's Hans, you know. Yeah. So, you know, and it's like, and slowly even Hans himself started realizing that it's like directors started even after paying three hundred thousand dollars for the best orchestra in London and and the and in LA, they used to go back to the demos and be like, why does that sound punchier and cooler? Why did we spend this money? No offense to orchestras; it's not their fault, right? And that's, I think, where Spitfire Audio and all of them kind of started getting together and going, like, "Hey, you know, we have an opportunity here because people don't understand just how much sound design goes into even an orchestral session." Yeah, like those spiccados that you hear on Batman stuff. That's not like you don't just get the conductor to, you know. Baton down, and those things sound in your face and distorted and beautiful. It's like it's layers upon layers of different takes. Sometimes you bring in players by section, so you get the whole orchestra, and then you bring in six violinists, six cello players, and all they do is close mic spiccato on top of the spiccato. And then you take those spiccato and you slice them, re-quantize them, pass them through some cool transient designer stuff and all that and layer those over the orchestra. And that becomes part of the final mix. The sessions that are sent to engineers now are like above 500 tracks, 700 tracks. It's a lot of mixing. Spiccato's alone I've seen can take up to 80 to 90 tracks. Just, that type of thing, the sixteen-hour yeah. thing.
0: So it's like it's crazy. That's extremely time-intensive, I imagine, just from like a
1: mixing a production standpoint, and the composing. That's everything. why you bring in other guys. Yeah, that's why you bring in other guys. It's kind of like a shortcut. Yeah, but you know, it's like unfortunately, they see all these credits and they think like, oh, well, yeah, if you've got twenty people working on the score. Then what did you write? You know. It- But it's not really like that. It's, it's really more of a sonic thing. It's, it's more of a production thing. So yeah, that's where it stemmed from that. I started getting into film because I started getting called for, you know, my chops as somebody that makes punchy stuff, whether it's loops, distorting organic strings, things like that, like, you know, sound designing vintage keyboards, you know, before Stranger Things, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'd be curious just
0: to like recap the process. And I'm sure it's not always exactly the same, depending on who you're working with and the score or whatever. But let's say, for example, you worked with the London Symphony, Iron Man 2, all these different films. Do you typically create, like you were saying, that loop library? of like a custom sample library, whatever you want to call it, and then present that? for the orchestra to like play on top of, or do they typically give you a piece that's already scored from the orchestra and that you're building based off of what you've been given? Like, what does that process look like? I'm curious,
1: and is it always changing? Yeah, it's always changing. Now I'm more of a composer myself. You know, I go in with the orchestra with everything mocked up, orchestrated, all the tracks are, you know, ready to go, pre-mixed, all that kind of stuff. Well, when I started with Iron Man 2, it was the situation I was explaining. Um, I worked with John Debney on that, who I've worked with several projects, who's at the level of Hans. You know, his take was that he, he was looking for something very specific uh, for Iron Man. He didn't want just sound libraries. He didn't, want, he didn't even want a loop library. What he wanted to do was, um, at the very beginning, Tom Morello was already signed on. Because he did the guitars for Iron Man One. So Tom Morello was there with some other incredible, you know, rock guys, not rage, but at that level. Cool. And it all started with taking sessions that were recorded of Tom basically like shredding out with an incredible metal, like rock ensemble. And I got called in to kind of take those raw. Elements and sort of remix them into something that was less of that ACDC Iron Man one style. Because the you know they changed the, the director didn't want that. They, he didn't want it to sound like ACDC on, on the second part. He wanted something more complex. Yeah. So for that one, I I started with the rock band and Tom's guitars, and then I kind of crafted all kinds of loops, sound designs, uh, even like just musical segments and things like that, that could go under orchestration. And then as the cues were kind of written, then I came back in post and I added a bunch of synths and distorted textures and took some of the elements and, you know, sound design off of that, then. We went to abbey road recorded the big orchestra and then after that i took the orchestra and did some of the techniques i told you about about layering spiccados with fake spiccados you know yeah at times i would um you know how you drum replace sometimes Mm -hmm. and add a hi-hat totally well what i would do is i would i would take like noise samples that were very punchy or like top loop small almost like modular hits and put them on every 16th note of a spiccato. Oh, interesting. And then I would kind of ride it with the dynamics. And so some of the spiccatos sounded like a, almost like an arpeggiator spiccato. Almost like you held down a finger and it went like, but you could hear that it was a real orchestra, but there was something on top of it (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was somehow kind of percussive. Emphasizing it just a little extra
0: that extra yeah, punch. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I've used envelope follower in Ableton for adding some layers and yeah. keeping it really tight with other elements that it was following. Yeah. Right. That's really cool. So would you yes. say that a lot of your experience with remixing artists before you got into the composing and the and all this stuff was really helpful just as far as manipulating stems with artists oh yeah yeah because you had a lot of history of doing that i would imagine even before for sure
1: yeah sure and um i mean first of all it's also why i got the gig to begin with because directors and john and and several other people in the industry kind of heard my some of my tracks and things i've done both with remixes and production and and you know they really like the approach of being a little more musical than just doing a big epic EDM thing or something, you know, it was always a little more like radio friendly in a way Mm -hmm. more than club. So because they knew the original, it kind of seemed interesting. Even the way I got into Ableton is that way. Really? What person was that? It was really interesting. Version three. Oh, wow. Uh, That's been a minute. Oh yeah. 2003. I remember because, um, I went to Berkeley, then I, got, I, I studied film scoring, and then I came to LA, but my first gigs weren't really doing film, it was doing pop records uh, with a big producer, and he was working with Ricky Martin and with Santana and, uh, you know, a lot of really big artists back then, and so um, I started kind of doing just kind of the Max Martin kind of vibe sound-ish while I was doing that, I started really meeting a lot of British artists here in LA that were part of the acid jazz scene and the drum and bass scene and all that. So I kind of started branching away from, I started doing remixes and, you know, eventually did a remix for Duran Duran for Capitol records. And it was like my kind of like, they were one of my heroes. So I was like, blown away and I was like this is my moment you know it's got to be amazing Yeah. so I spent like a lot of time doing that and then you know I get the call and the a and like guess what we you know we got kind of in a bind with Duran Duran and they're leaving the label I'm like what do you mean so what happened to the remix and he's like man I love this remix so trust me we'll make something work and I was like yeah right and I'll never hear from this guy again Right, And then, lo and behold, two weeks later, my manager gets a call and it's the A&R guy. And he's like, how about if we put Sting on top of this track? And I'm like, wow. What? The small name. Yeah. So take off Duran Duran. We put Sting on. The chords, we change them. And he's got this song from Sacred Love called Never Coming Home. And he loves the track. He just wants to sing over it. And then we're going to put it out. On the query for the Straight Guy label, which is owned by Kappa. and it's going to be the biggest label of 2002 uh, or something. It's a nice and I was like, Done. <laughs> yeah. So I actually went into the studio with Sting, who was awesome, very generous, cool. and we did the track. And you know, it, it came out, and he still loves it. Like I, I go to his shows, and he still remembers that. But. Amazing. What that led to was working with Capitol Records, which led to Sting's label Interscope. And that's where the funny Ableton story comes in. Until that point, I was kind of, this is like early 2000s. So until that point, I was like all hardware, you know, NPCs, still got them. Got a 3000, which I love. I just can't part oh, with it. Oh, yeah. Them. And my 4000. And, you know, I got the Octa track and stuff. But yeah. Back then, it was like, you know, so limited, man. It's like, what do we have? 16 tracks, 32 tracks in Pro Tools. Uh, Reason, you know, there wasn't much. So I I had a very audio hands-on approach to remixing, which was, you know, I would take the vocals off of DAT or ADAT or DA88, why them in, put them in time, and then... I would make all the production, you know, with analog gear and PCs, start layering them in audio, and then kind of start doing my editing. Yeah. You know, MIDI wasn't even a factor, you know? So after the thing thing, you know, Interscope was like, oh, we got a bunch of stuff for you. And first thing is we need, it's the anniversary of the Counting Crows hanging around. Oh, wow. It's been 10 years and we're putting out a new radio single for England and all that, and we need a remix, but we don't need a dance remix. It needs to be just like what would Fatboy Slim do with the Counting Crows? I'm like, okay, I like Fatboy Slim, that's cool. And then he goes, "Here's the caveat, though. You're going to work with Adam Duritz, the singer, you know." And I'm like, "That's awesome."
0: Sure, and he's like, yeah,
1: but he's he's but he's pretty particular, and I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> fine. Good luck, uh, you know. And little did I know, right? But it's um, funny. So here was the what happened, though. I talked to Adam, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're ready to go. We're uh, we don't have any of this digital. So Interscope is passing the tapes down right now, and you're gonna get a CD with all the stems." And I'm like, "Well, what do you mean a CD? Like, how am I gonna sync it up?" Yeah, and he goes, "I don't know. You know." <laughs> Figure it out I'm like man. okay cool all right yeah <laughs> I mean you know I, I'm a newbie so I'm like yeah whatever I got it you always say yes so we fly <laughs> always so we yeah. fly in the stems and they're all out of order so oh, no. they're like and we're, and then okay so finally we kind of piece the band together but some things came in later and it wasn't like there was the exact amount of time for the take
0: yeah. to where
1: if you put the dead silence it kind of all works. That's the worst. So I call the label and I'm like, they don't sync up. And he's like, Oh, Adam didn't tell you. And I'm like, what? They didn't do this to a click. And I'm like, Yeah, but they should but I heard the final mix. I mean, they still all played in time. He goes, Oh no, no. I mean, they all overdubbed. And
0: oh, I'm wow. like, they
1: overdubbed without a click? And he's oh, like, wow. Yeah. And I'm like, tell me the drummer overdubbed first. He's like, uh, eh, we're not so sure. Oh
0: my God. <laughs>
1: so anyway, man, it's like, I'm like oh my God, I'm going to get fired for sure. And so then my friend, a guitar player, who was my partner at the time, doing a bunch of stuff, he goes, dude, have you heard of Live? And I said, yeah, but isn't that thing like Reason? Isn't it kind of like, you know, to toy around for people that don't know music and stuff?
0: (laughs) You know, and he's like, no,
1: dude, he goes, he goes, no, it's amazing. I go, what does it do? And he goes, all right, send me all those stems from the CD. So he brings up his laptop. He pulls up live three and he goes, give me an hour. And like after an hour, he goes, okay, check this. The rhythm section is in time. And I'm like, come on. And he plays it. And it's like in time. Not only is it in time, it's tight, tighter mm. than the original recording. Wow. I'm Wow. Like, How'd you do that? And he goes, dude, all you have to do is grab these warp markers. And you just start seeing where all the transients hit and you start kind of warping it back. Yeah. And I know that sounds like it's like, are you nuts? Like, why would you do that to every single track? But you have to understand that before this, it was Rex. Yeah. Like, we had to go in there and slice, manually slice everything pre-live. Oh, yeah. And then trim it back and crossfade everything.
0: Yeah, we're really spoiled today.
1: Oh man. So we're it spoiled. was like I literally like it would take three days just to have the original session.
0: Ah oh, damn. Ready to be read. Sounds like it was a horrible, headache. man.
1: But fast forward and you start realizing that when somebody sends you a bunch of orchestral takes, it's kind of a piece of cake compared to out of time stems of yeah. rock bands. You know, that didn't record to a click. So it's like, that's where the live, like after that one thing, I always had a lot. Like every single update. And in fact, I got in with the guys because I told Olaf, who was the head of Ableton in Berlin, I told him the story and he was like, he was like, I got to see this session. You know, it's like, (laughs) and I'm like, yeah, I got to pull it up one day. It's, it's, it's nuts.
0: Probably have some trauma when you open that set. You oh it again. my god. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No,
1: things were worse before.
0: Yeah. I've heard that story many times. A lot of people moved to Ableton because of really two things just the warping with the audio and time stretching and MIDI. I mean, those are two yeah. of like the the bread and butter of Ableton back in the day, really, comparing to anything yeah. else that was out there.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And especially in film the, the capacity to have kind of a loop browser yeah. that plays like the big, big Ableton thing that really kind of sold a lot of composers was how it would, you know, play back your loop library, your clips library to whatever tempo you were at at the moment. Yeah, that's nice. That's, that was like, you know, before that, there really was only Dr. Rex yeah. um in Reason and... That didn't work out that well because you had to rex the file before even doing. Yeah. You know, so you go back to this prehistoric Counting Crows type of thing, yeah. where it's like you got to sit there and like slice every single loop in your library just to check it out, lady. The preview option and everything warped in time is so nice, amazing. And we still do that, you know, after every orchestral session or after every project, I keep I slice musical segments of the best moments of the score of like, like it can be some violin, some percussion, some loops, some little percolating thing. We recorded guitars, whatever. I kind of make four bar loops, eight bar loops and just kind of keep them in clips, you know, with their plugins, all that. And then, you know, maybe two years, three years down the line, I was like, and on that one industrial score is like, there was this super cool, like little percussive thing, boom. You know, it's like, I can preview it, pop it in yeah um yeah it's super cool so i imagine that you're getting quite
0: a bit of stems these days depending on the project of an orchestra like how many stems oh. what's the most amount of stems that you've been set before to remix say for oh, example
1: 700 that's overwhelming that stresses <laughs> that stresses me out because you got all the mic positions too i mean for the most part engineers are very cool and before it all depends on the deadline, because sometimes these deadlines are crazy. But if the engineer gets an, uh, you know, gets a chance to kind of submix the stuff, yeah, that's the best. And if they can do it on the stage console, like, you know, a lot of times you record on these beautiful like Neve 88 RS, you know, just these SSL dualities and stuff. And at times, what we do is as after the orchestral session, you just start kind of bouncing down little mixes of of cool stuff like <laughs> even mixes that aren't necessarily like oh this is a beautiful string pass of all the mic sounding really good and the strings sometimes it's something weird you know like, like at air studios when we were doing the robocop score sometimes you got these weird percussion hits when they were actually setting up that kind of reverberated in the gallery and it was like you know, kind of an anvil or a crash hammer that just went like, whoa, whoa, whoa," or something cool. And, you know, I'd ask the engineer, like, just clip that and put it, you know, put it on your desk. You know, like, just anything that can be kind of like, wow, okay, that's not a synth, it's not a sample, it's not from a library, but it's, like, super cool. Yeah. A lot of those things happen organically. Yeah. You know? Um, I I actually did a remix
0: the Indianapolis symphony Oh, cool! and I worked with a hip hop artist. They had like a rap culture event basically where they did a dedication to like rap culture with the yeah. symphony. And I was asked to sit in to remix. That was like a crash course. One thing I did, um, kind of like what you were saying is taking those little imperfections or pieces or just yeah. room noise or something. And there was just like some extra echo and noise in the room. I took that and I used that as an impulse response and the convolution reverb to apply to the other instruments that I was using to try to make a cohesive sound. Exactly. It really just tied a lot of stuff together. It was actually kind of fun.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. That So, you know, that's it. That's it. It's a lot of that. And nobody's ever sampled Air Studios, the convolution. I, I don't know if they don't let you or if, but, you know, you've got, actually, now that I think of it, they don't have Abbey Road either. Like on Altiverb and all those. Um, yeah. That's true. So we've, we've, I love Altiverb. Yeah, they have the American stages like Fox, Sony. Yeah. So, you know, we've taken a few kind of not gunshot, but you know, like Clave or something. Yeah. We've taken some impulse responses. Oh. Cool. But but the ones that come from the instruments themselves are the coolest, you know, like like yeah. when they decay and cut off or something.
0: That's yeah, no, that's awesome. There's a yeah. billion ways to go about that kind of stuff. So yeah. let me ask you, I never received more than like i think 70 stems they submix the orchestra down for me quite a bit but what's your approach typically if you're receiving that many stems say from an orchestra or whatever um in ableton maybe we get a little more specific like what what does your approach typically look like when you're importing that in and just organizing it starting to mess
1: with stuff well i organize that kind of stuff in pro tools still okay um just because the session comes in pro Tools, and uh I also have an HDX system so I have tons of voices. Nice. When I do that, I'm not like making like final mixes that are going to end up in the score and stuff. So I don't I don't spend there like, you know, taking every single mic and kind of blending it perfectly and then doing that. It's more um sometimes I won't do anything with the orchestra. I'll just have them there as a guide. And so I'll just do kind of a nice bounce of, you know, stems of a nice mix of the overall families of woodwinds, percussion, brass, et cetera. Then I, in Ableton, I start adding the percussive elements or whatever is needed. Sometimes guitar stuff, uh, sound design stuff, you know, like, like droney stuff, all that kind of thing. Um, and then sometimes something will happen with an overall stem of a family of like, say the woodwinds or something. And, you know, I really started getting the granular stuff enabled. That's cool. Mainly from going back to earlier versions of live, I would make mistakes. Here, I'm going to stretch it like a minute, (laughs) you know, and you start getting the red notification, but then you start realizing that it goes down to the granular sample. And it does all these weird artifacts. (laughs) And so I started kind of taking note of like certain moments where that kind of stuff was really cool. Yeah. And I did that a lot with Iron Man too, actually. Like some of the fills in sections are a drum fill or even a timpani fill that just goes like, you know, and then the last hit, I'll grab the transient, but I'll stretch the end to the point where it just kind of does that squealy kazoo like thing. yeah i'm sure you've heard it yeah and it just becomes like or something like that and then i'll ramp it up through the automation yeah i'll kind of ramp up the tempo and i'll do like like almost like techno snare fills yeah. from those ramps so i create like uh You know, uplifters or whatever, you know, like stuff you would hear from Vengeance. Yeah. From the orchestra. That's cool. Like directors love
0: that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's extremely organic. Nobody's going to have that exact sound.
1: That's exactly why. Yeah. The thing they hate the most is stuff like Vengeance. Like anything that seems like a cliche from the dance world. That kind of stuff. It's like instantly, nope. Mm-hmm. like any type of filter rise that's just you know typical or or side chain things that are just you know that dead mouse or yeah. no offense to any of that it just to them you know they're all really trying to put on a sonic stamp even if they're not musicians themselves mm-hmm. they want to steer away from anything that's been done too much so that's yeah. why like you know i try to get those happy accidents and stuff
0: and that makes a ton of sense to me. <clears throat> I mean, we've all heard the Vengeance sample pack kind of orchestral fake sounds. I, I don't know. As a director, if I was a director, I would want to be the most original as possible. With And obviously, the music is really fueling the emotion and the energy of the trailer or what's happening in a scene or a transition. And so, yeah, it makes sense to me that you would want to steer
1: away from any kind of splice sample pack sound yeah i mean they're they're you know they're interesting if that's what you're going for in in a certain track but um and it has nothing to do with them being bad samples because vengeance has some cool stuff it's more it goes back to that brian eno kind of a thing you know electronic music is is hard to define first of all because it's like who started electronic music you know it's like yeah. yeah, was it stock housing? You know, was it is it modular? What it's hard like Brian Eno is the Joshua Tree. You know, yeah. you too. But what's electronic about the Joshua Tree? It's not that there's like synth filters, you know, sweeps, and you know, arpeggiators, and even vintage synths on that album. Is it's that the way they played with space echoes and. Delays and the edges guitar, and even things that Peter Gabriel did early on um, had nothing to do with synths. Even Phil Collins's, you know, infamous "In the Air Tonight," Phil, which was the talkback mic on an SSL, you could call oh, yeah. that electronic music. You know, that was an electronic music moment where something was left, and it there was a feedback, and it distorted, and it filtered it high passed it and it became that fill director and they reference electronic music they don't reference edm and they don't reference that's not what they're meaning what they mean is what weird piece of gear or pedal or plugin plugins are a little less sexy tone, but you know like like what can you pass this through that will make it sound like something completely different, preferably dark and nasty? Dark and nasty, <laughs> you know. And you know, great. it's like that's why I have like the fat, so and some of the overstayer stuff and the culture yeah. vulture and all that because love it. You know, at times you do that with them in the room, you know. It's uh, I mean, part of the time you kind of want to show off a little, but of course, of course, but, you that know, never just hurts. because you're like check this out you know and but they love it because they feel like you know it's they get excited kind of like you know i've been in sessions with guitar players where they kind of plug in you know they're playing an amp and it sounds like yay you sound like a guitar and then they plug in their pedal board and everything changes Mm. you know they got whammy pedals and they have cool strumming crazy reverbs and You know, bucket brigade delays and things are feeding back into each other, and that approach is what directors look for in producers and electronic people. So, the more you know about like turning organic sources into otherworldly ambient things or distorted things or things like that, the better off you're going to be in that world. Plugins work too. The only problem with plugins is that. When you're doing it in real time, it loses a little bit of the manipulation effect. I mean, push is cool because I've been in situations, you know, where the director doesn't have to look at my screen and be like, "Oh yeah, so you're driving," so it's the drive that's doing that, you know, or whatever. It's like you you give them the push and you're like, "Cool, this knob, turn it." And, you know, yeah. the director himself kind of goes like this and like, you know, the feedback goes crazy or, or I've got erosion yeah. on there and it's kind of like you're in that kind of grain size thing. And they're like, whoa. And to be honest, man, that's the easiest way to get anything approved <laughs> <laughs> because it's kind of like, you know, it's like. He played on it, so he's like, yeah, be the best idea, but because he did one little tweak on push. Yeah, done.
0: <laughs> yep, and he feels like a producer. He's like, I turned exactly. that knob. and made this whole exactly. thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're still all musicians at Hardman, and the director, right. you know, he wants that. It's not really. I mean, some some directors never come into the room, but I mean, it, it, not even the director. Sometimes the composer, you know, is the guy that doesn't really understand what Ableton does. Sure. And you start kind of showing him some of the things you can do with Push. And they're like blown away, you know, even just the slicing aspect mm. of it, you know, the grid yeah. slicing stuff is crazy. Yeah. You know, um, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. They're probably more invested if they can be in person and see the results and be part, make them feel more a part of it by touching fun buttons and things. And, and also like a lot of work can be done remotely too. I'm sure you've done quite a bit remotely as well. Yeah. I would like to talk to you. I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I do want to kind of get in the weeds a little bit about some other things in your process. Yeah, um, exactly. especially with like
1: sound design. Because, well, first of all, sure. like, what are some of your favorite sound design moments you've worked on? Well, Iron Man 2 was very, very cool because that one was stages of sound design. Like I think I touched on a bit about first starting with Tom Morello stuff, then doing the orchestral stuff, then doing. My own stuff over it, and then kind of going back in post and producing the whole sound overall, yeah, you know um that was really cool because it was it was it kind of touches on all the stages of sound design sound design for me is that Brian Eno thing that we spoke of, which is uh how do I take something recognizable and mundane, possibly organic, but maybe not and make it something that is almost a hook in itself, which Mm -hmm. to me is what Brian Eno does, because even what he did with Paul Simon and stuff on his record, even with Coldplay, it's like, sometimes he'll just take a little loop that's, but it's kind of a loop of of a tape or something. And it just becomes the rhythm of the track. And then you add drums on top of that. My sound design moments usually involve something musical like that. I had a really cool time doing Houdini with Adrian Brody. That's cool. That was really cool for Hulu. The reason that was so cool is that, you know, um, I went into it thinking that they wanted, um, you know, something like a Sherlock Holmes kind of orchestral organic score, but the director actually wanted like an industrial score, partly industrial, like dark nine inch nails industrial and also part metal sound like metallic sounds like locks yeah clicks keys clocks anything metallic because a lot of Houdini's situations were you know that he was trapped against time Mm. and it involved handcuffs or it involved a jail cell or it involved getting out of uh a vault underwater or like you know crazy stuff yeah and he wanted to play up the kind of sub conscious feeling of that cold metal against your skin mm-hmm. and um so instead of adding a bunch of sound effects what well, what i did is that i would make a lot of rhythms from uh handcuffs and keys, locks zippo lighters uh anything metallic i could get a ha- my hands on. like even just yeah. brushes on a laptop and then coins on you know I had a hang, a hang drum brought in, uh, anything you could imagine. And I kind of did some Foley on that. And then I started building loops in Ableton that were like these strange kind of randomized slices of metallic things. Interesting. Yeah, it was really cool. And it's what led me to like my obsession with the Octa track and things like that. Yeah. One of the things I'm doing a lot with Ableton is, um, using randomizer. Okay. And because what I ended up doing on that score is that I would take a bunch of different eight note patterns or things like that, that I did, that I step sequenced. And then I would randomize slices in drum tracks or in simple. Oh. And every slice had a different metallic sound. So say the bottom of the keyboard was like a dark, maybe like a, a an anvil hit or like a drum case hit with uh, something metallic. And then the top of it was a coin. And so then I would kind of randomize 61 slices or something like that. And I would automate the randomized button yeah. so that every four loops, it kind of turned back onto a different slice. And it ended up, a lot of times it didn't work, but a lot of times, Eight bars of that just had this killer rhythm where, like, it just happened to be that the ones and threes landed on the downbeat, and then the upbeats were something kind of brighter. So it almost sounded like a beat. Yeah. And a lot of that stayed in. Like, there's moments where he's taking off the handcuffs, and it sounds like a clock, but it's those beats. Mm. It's like you know different and then you can also randomize you know step sequence the the filters so like if something was too bright then at that moment i i kind of you know you hear a little bit of a sweep but just on an eighth note things like that you know yeah um very cool stuff yeah very cool stuff i've always been
0: fascinated with sound design with foley i think it's just that organic raw texture that I think when you hear something that's like in our natural environment or world, it almost resonates with you so much differently than something that's not a natural sonic capability that you hear in our typical day-to-day environment. Like keys is obviously more natural. Like we have that or like just the tapping of metal, things that we can more naturally as humans associate with and like resonate with somehow so totally
1: yeah. and now the found sound thing is like crazy and people you know doing all these recordings of uh you know rivers and creeks and uh nature yeah. and all that it's it's very cool i mean yeah no it's it's great man I, I was watching
0: on instagram i'm gonna draw a blank on his name but the guy that did sound design for the first jurassic park maybe you know who that is but he was uh talking about layering a baby elephant for the t-rex So the T-Rex sound is actually a baby elephant layered with like five other things. I think he did some kind of like weird drum, like djembe in a cave or something and stretched it out with a baby elephant and like three other layers to create that kind of wild just T-Rex scream. It was really fun. Um, I know for the movie Transformers, they filmed a lot of the Foley or recorded a lot of the Foley in a junkyard. It to like a scrap metal yeah. yard and just starts
1: smacking random stuff. It's pretty fun. Yeah. All that stuff, composers do a lot of that stuff too, like Eskimo, Brendan Angelides, uh who did Billy's, uh, before he even got that show, in fact, I think he got that show because he's such a genius at that uh, found sound thing. Like, he, he even has an NPR. You should check it out. Um, okay. He just, he, he kind of does looper little performances, but a lot of his records have really unrecognizable, but natural kind of sources that he tweaked yeah. and they're super cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah,
0: so I love that. I love that stuff. Yeah, I feel like it, I feel like it's it's something I want to do more with my own music personally, just because the fun, like the nature of it is just fun. I mean, you, nobody else is going to create that sound ever. It's going to be original. I know it's
1: amazing. Yeah, you should.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I recorded a goose and I turned it into a synthesizer once. (laughs) I bet you
1: did. Did it sound like a Moog bass or something?
0: Uh, It wasn't a bass. It was more (laughs) of kind of like a mid-frequency. It sounded like a saw. It was like a sawtooth kind of synth sound. Yeah, layered. That's cool. I think I layered it with Omnisphere or something. Anybody who's listened to this podcast long enough knows that I had a serious goose problem outside of my front porch. There was just too many of them. (laughs) So you made the best of it. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I, I can either beat them or join them. I might as well, there just, you go. Might as well make a sample pack out of it or something.
1: Oh, I've done that so many times. I had a, uh, Yeah. I remember when my computer used to crash, it made this horrible sound and then it would kind of stay recorded in the, in the WAV file. So when you brought up the, the session, the next time, oh, really? the end was just this horrible, distorted white noise. And we ended up starting to keep some of those because some of them started getting really weird. That's awesome. Like sometimes the end of the take would just kind of do like a, a you know, like that verify plugin that sounds like, like a stop on a tape machine. Like it was just yeah. go like, Ew. you know, just like some demonic stuff and started happening. We started kind of trimming a lot of this stuff. That's great. I love that. So I know that I know the feel.
0: Yeah. The computer crashing sample pack. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm imagining like the terrible dial-up sound that we used to have to listen to every time we connected to the internet and it took like 10 minutes. Oh my minutes. God,
1: American on- America Online AOL.
0: Ah, it's the worst. That was the worst sound of any computer I've ever heard. That was horrible. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like the computer was in pain.
1: Yeah, w- I won't use that. <laughs> well, are there any specific,
0: uh, I know we're short on time, but are there any specific... All right, able go to- ahead, man, we got some time. Any specific Ableton devices or instruments that are just always your go to you talked about using like random randomization, you talked about maybe the simpler with slice mode,
1: talked about some other things. Yeah, I use some of the K devices stuff too. Um, They have some very cool. They started coming out with a lot of randomization stuff. Uh, So I use their plugins before things like simpler or drum racks, you I love the new drift yes uh synth very cool yes i haven't explored it quite enough but i you know i see the potential and uh it's incredible i've always loved loved i kind of always did what that does with pedals um, but i just love having that in one environment very cool oh yeah yeah i mean the the dynamic tube is actually spectacular yeah it Uh, is one of my favorite effects Um, I'm guessing, I mean, they, they use the culture vulture as a inspiration for that judging by the ABC thing, but, um, Mm -hmm. it really is so unique. Like it has a a pretty unique stamp erosion. Very cool. Yes. Love love erosion. I've been using that forever. Yeah. Great delays in general operator. There's, there's so many, um, I use, I've always been an audio guy really. So my, my MIDI enabled is pretty limited. Um, how I use it for MIDI. Um, I'd say I use it more to slice audio as MIDI than I use it to make beats and things like that because I'm just so hardware-oriented in that way that just I always end up starting something with a piece of hardware like a machine drum or a, a mono machine or an electron something or like my NPCs or, you know, et cetera, or even me on a drum set or something and then ableton is my tightener slicer manipulator slash whatever you know yeah. sound design so yeah. so really simpler and sampler are kind of my thing yeah. and you know it's a um just the amount of time that i spend creating and drum racks of course creating um you know my own kind of sample instruments
0: yeah is where I spend a lot of the time. It makes sense because it looks like you have a lot of beautiful analog toys in there that can probably generate a lot of sound for you without needing to use MIDI. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and at the same time it's kind of like, you know, it's hard. Even though I've tried to have several computer, I have several audio interfaces so that I can export something from Ableton through the hardware and then back into another Ableton on another computer, you know, sometimes. And... You know, I've started using Ableton like that, and it's really cool. But at some point here, something definitely gets routed out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I don't think I've ever done a single mix that was 100% in the box. Really? Not just plugins, but also sources, ever.
0: Yeah. You know? So you do, do you do quite a bit of, like, reamping, I would imagine, with yeah. some sounds and pedals? Yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's part of the vibe. So that's why, like, I keep so many clips in Ableton, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you a lot of times
0: start ideas or loops in session view, or do you typically jump straight into arrangement
1: for recording? No, I do a lot in session view, actually, because I like kind of seeing how how some things may go together. And I do a lot of resampling as well, Mm. because, you know, Like I said, at times, like I'll take three or four days of just hardware loop creation. Yeah. Whether it's for a song, an album, a film, whatever it is. And then I'll take like the greatest hits of those all trimmed up nicely and I'll put them in my clips. And then I'll start seeing, you know, in session view kind of, oh, well, you know, what's really cool is that these two synth arpeggios are kind of off, but in a cool way. So why don't we make that one? sound and then i'll resample that maybe through a couple cool plugins yeah and then that becomes its own clip and et cetera et cetera et cetera yeah so it's very modular in that way it's kind of like you know it's it's kind of like the way people use modular gear where they kind of spend hours just making weird stuff and then kind of they're recording the whole time and then they go back and get the greatest hits yeah I use Ableton for that a lot. That's that's like my main my main thing. I'm very
0: similar in that way, in my workflow. <laughs> I do a lot of resampling, freezing flattening. Have you ever heard of the Max Live device bounce in place? I've talked about it a few times on the podcast. Yeah. It's it's so easy for resampling. I always yeah. key map it and then I just hit a button and then it just instantly you can depending on how you set up the device, you can have it take a direct input. Otherwise Resampling by default goes through the master post effects. Um, yeah. And so then you don't have to worry about hitting the limiter and everything on your master yeah. as well. And it's just really fast. You just hit one button, pops open a new track, records whatever you want it to do real fast.
1: Oh, yeah. Max for Live is awesome. In fact, yeah. I used to use Pluggo. Did you ever hear of that thing?
0: No. What is that? That was
1: Cycling 74's like universal like max for live but for any daw oh wow and it was quirky and weird it was all in audio suite uh man i'm dating myself now (laughs) um, that's cool it was it was crazy that that was one of the first like uh, you know times that i had seen plugins be so weird because at, at the beginning of the game like i mean my game at least like 99 plugins were meant to kind of be like your extra cue or your extra little compressor, you know, Bomb Factory. No, oh, yeah, uh, you know, Sound Toys, uh, yeah, Echo Farm. They weren't like weird, tweaky stuff, um, like they are now.
0: So, Basically.
1: Plugo Cycling seventy four came with that suite of just weirdness. Like you really? know, the names didn't even make sense. Like it would just be like, like, like they were named after video game. I think one was called like like Frankenstein or something and you just let's see what Frankenstein does you know <laughs> <laughs> and it would just do this like low pitch kind of like demon voice kind of it was weird it was cool yeah like,
0: yeah yeah <laughs> back in the day I do love sound toys though I use them quite a sound bit for a lot of stuff there's so many plugins sure. out there seems like everybody in the grand grandma's has a plug-in company now it's just so many yeah but, um yeah, there's uh there was actually two new Max Five devices I thought that were interesting that I started playing with. One is called Device Matrix. Have you have you seen that? Which I thought no. whenever I have like a really heavy mix session in Ableton, it's kind of cool because you if you have like you know, hundreds of tracks or whatever it's kind of a pain in the ass to have to click on every track just to see the chain. Right? Yeah. So this solves that for you. It has one window that you can open. And then it shows all the tracks on the left, and then all the devices in a row, and you can really yeah. quickly solo or dry wet mix any device you want really fast and see all of it in one place, which is kind of nice.
1: That's Dino cool. Pro- I gotta check it out. Yeah,
0: because that's been a complaint for a lot of people with mixing or mastering too. Because obviously in Pro Tools you can have all of that in one place to see it pretty yeah. easily. So this I confess, that.
1: I cannot, I cannot mix in Ableton. Really? Um, it's because, and I've, I've been talking to my boys over there for years. I can't stand the fact that the master limiter is post. Mm. Um, I'm sorry that the master fader is post, meaning okay. that you always have to have it at zero. If you like in pro tools, say you have like, you're ready to do like a little master, a little mix, uh bus, right? So maybe you throw on a little SSL bus compressor and an EQ and then your ozone. What you do is when you're when you're seeing how much you want to hit the SSL bus compressor, for example, you lower the master fader and it lowers your your master bus. In in Ableton, it doesn't. In Ableton, you look if you lower your master fader to minus 15. It's still as distorted as it was at zero. Mm-hmm. You understand because you would ha- you have to make a group of all your tracks, then lower that group before it hits the first plugin on your master sure. bus. Yeah, I see what you mean. I can't stand that for the reason that I actually mix through my outboard gear. like I re my my whole mix goes through my manlies and all that every single time. So when I'm in Ableton, I have to group everything
0: and yeah. i
1: can't really have a dedicated master bus until i do that i wonder if you could do like the pre year post
0: fader somehow on a return track and then yeah you but you it, have that to kind your of master set it up. you can make but that then your you have master to instead yeah you could create a
1: template to do that but i i could see i know but it actually doesn't make any sense it it, it makes no sense to me on even on like the way the real world works because if you look at the way any chain works it works linearly you know what i'm saying meaning like even on an ssl console the sum of everything is what goes directly into the bus compressor and then the master fader is the output of the sum plus bus compressor final thing is one fader so you can do a fade out yeah if you think about it, you can't even really do a if you do a fade out in live, and you, and you want it to not do less, meaning hit your compression less at the end, you still have to group everything yeah. and do everything from a from a VCA or a, a grouped track. Yeah, because the master fader is like the
0: final final end of everything. Well, yeah.
1: the thing is, if you start yeah, because if you start lowering, you know. It doesn't work the way it would work on a console.
0: Yeah, yeah, you'd probably have to automate like utility or something at the beginning of your mastering chain if you want to do something. That well, I told here.
1: my my the way I visualized it to the Ableton guys because they were like, "Huh? Oh, well, why can't you just do that?" Like, you know, nobody really cares. And I'm like, "Okay, but imagine this: if you had to do that when we used to mix on consoles, you know what you would have had to do? You would have had to tie all the lab- all the faders yeah. together." And then one guy would have to be pulling them down to do a fade. That'd be impressive to watch, actually. No, they laughed. And I'm like, that's what you have to do. Except in your case, we can group them. But yeah. it's, you know, it's not it's not really a fade in that way. Sure. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess
0: I've never really known any other way because, I mean, I... I grew up in the box for the most part working with Ableton and Cubase and Pro Tools, not working with a ton of boards. So I could see how that would be a different approach or mindset. Yeah.
1: Well the uh, the only reason it came up to me was because I before knowing that, I I kind of sent somebody a mix thinking that, you know, oh no, this is how it happened actually because I was so used to the way that Pro Tools and every other DAW, by the way, Logic actually does it like, uh, worked, is that I actually bounced down a session and I was late and I was like really, really kind of like in a hurry. And so what I did is I lowered the master fader. I did my, my mix bus the way I always do it in Pro Tools. I lowered my master fader and then I bounced without listening. Then I got to the session, played it for the artist, and it was horribly distorted. So I called my assistant and I'm like, hey, man, did it bounce wrong? What's going on? And he goes, no, I just pulled up the session and it's distorting like crazy. And I'm like, but I turned ozone by minus 13. And he's like, well, yeah, but the thing is you turn down the limiter and you turn down the master fader, but they're not, the master fader is post. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, so what he what he ended up having to do is just take all my plugins off. Oh wow! And just give me like a version that didn't distort. Yeah, and it was annoying, and I was like, "Wow, that is so weird." I never realized that. Yeah, until I tried mixing one. Anyway, but that's a. I guess it's a good crash
0: course to realizing how it all works. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of how you hit compression. To me, how you how you hit a, ma- a bus compressor is what I love the most about mixing. Yeah, like I mix I mix into. I have an SSL G bus compressor that I will just always use. I love that thing. It's so beautiful, and yeah. like even when I take stuff out of live, I have to. I will. That will be the holy grail. Meaning, like if it's over compressing then I turned down lie. I never turned down the threshold because okay. that thing I've, I've gotten so used to it. I've been working with it for 20 years that I know like there's certain sweet spots where it has this cool punch mm. that is more about hitting it softer or louder yeah. than it is turning the threshold down. It uh, does different okay. things. It's qu- It's quirky like that. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So like so like some people are like, well, just turn the threshold all the way down and it won't over compress. And I'm like, yeah, but it'll compress different. Oh, yeah. And I've shown them, I'm like, check this out. You'll see the needle going to, to four, but I'm going to do it by turning live up and turning the threshold all the way down. They hear it that way. And now I'm going to turn down live and put the threshold like at minus 12. Same exact compression, but watch how it bounces faster. Interesting. And they're like, wow,
0: that's true. I'll have to play with that a little bit because I have, I mean, I don't have actual hardware G-bus, yeah. but I have the um, the UAD version that I use on my masters that I love.
1: Yeah, I mean, inside live, how would you do that? I mean, I guess it would be you would have to group up all your tracks Yeah, and then lower them and see how it's affecting the compression. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll play with that. That's cool. I mean, it does sound awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I it's know, amazing.
0: And it's- Ableton's glue compressor is supposed to oh, model yeah. the g-bus yeah that's the cytomic made one right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's cool i love turning on oversampling on that if you right click on it you can turn on oversampling for it and then if you just i'll use it as a main distortion like i'll just drive the makeup gain, turn on self oh, yeah. clipping, and destroy stuff sounds so good beautiful yeah it really does yeah the
1: ua um, the the ua stuff is great for that the api is really good for that too Mm-hmm. um yeah yeah, yeah all the, all those quirky all those uh the manly stuff is beautiful yeah they, they do quirky stuff you know it's like all these hardware things like space echoes and stuff like that like depending on how you hit it it distorts differently yeah. um you know yeah. so yeah it's a little it's a little gripe i have about ableton but yeah it's not a big deal yeah,
0: yeah. i guess for all those people out there who are annoyed just I guess you just have to start grouping all your
1: tracks. So maybe some people don't even care. Maybe they, they, they like the way it kind of it's, uh yeah, it like over slams the master bus or something. Yeah, I guess so. Do you record?
0: You have a patch like, cause you talked about modular and you like modular and stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you ever record modular into Ableton as a sampler instrument that you could just carry around? So you, like sample say every note or something, so you wouldn't have to take that modular
1: gear or piece of gear with you. Uh,
0: no, no,
1: because it okay. doesn't do the same thing. It's it's uh, and plus it's like I feel like other people have done that better. Yeah. Um, like you know, like Softube has has a great like if I really want to take the experience of modular, I kind of will use like Softube modular or or some stuff like that. Um, because the thing with modular for me, like the thing with all my electron boxes and all that, it's all about the happy accent. Yeah. You know, like I don't, I don't really sit in Ableton and like draw stuff in and make, make arpeggiators and do stuff like that. It's like, if I use an arpeggiator in Ableton, what I do is I've got the MIDI notes, but the MIDI notes are triggering my profit or mm-hmm. a Juno, or my Jupiter 8, or some of my modular stuff. Right. And that gets reimported into live as audio. Yeah. So it never is really a situation where if I just took every oscillator from a fat modular sound, I wouldn't really go in there and kind of make an arpeggiator out of that sound or or play a pad or something i've done that but it's it's more general like like i'll record four notes from a juno and just do some weird you know like kind of like what drift does where it kind of does this weird yeah it's like a slight pitch deviation and yeah because there's such a like stretch between octaves that it does weird stuff
0: yeah yeah drift is really cool I need to spend some more time playing with it. Um, I talked to Mark Mosher. He was commissioned by Ableton to make a bunch of presets for it, and oh, cool. got to see him do a presentation on it. It just sounds incredible, and it's really cool yeah. that it's available in all versions of Live now. So I mean, if yeah. you buy a cheap like you know twenty five key MIDI keyboard, you most likely you're going to get a free copy of Live that comes with Drift, and that's like a nice set know, that you could that use. Wow,
1: yeah, that's amazing.
0: Which is really nice. Yep.
1: Yeah, no, Ableton is value package for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I saw a video you did recently talking about uh, like using the Studio Electronics Boomstar. I think it was like the 8106 through Valhalla. Yeah, that sounded beautiful. Oh, thanks, man. You were talking about running a lot of your modular through like Valhalla, uh, which is like a live action director's dream. It's just like yeah, crazy that kind of. Spacey, that's what I was dirty. talking about,
1: like that that yeah. when they when they're in the room and you kind of start tweaking knobs, yeah. like the eighty one hundred six, just stuff that they haven't seen before. Um, yeah. It gets very cool. Valhalla makes awesome stuff, and that I mean Studio Electronics is to me the greatest. I have mini Mogs and I have a, a Jupiter eight and all that, but I will say hands down, if like I had to trade in everything, I would never get rid of my Studio Electronics. Wow. It is. I have the ATC, the SC1X, the 8106, the SEO 2 a couple of the SCM. I have like a lot of their Boomstar boxes and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're just like the greatest, man. They're. I've replaced Minimo stuff so many times with the SC1X where I just swore, like, oh, nothing tops. You know, that Minimo sound. It's so fat and stuff. And then like, I just played the same thing on the sc one x and I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> that Honestly, isn't even, that isn't even, like, easier. How is this possible? Right.
0: Yeah. Amazing, yeah. man. I saw your video of the 8106 and I was like, hmm,
1: might have to go out and give me one of these. Oh, nice. man. Those, those boom stars are serious. Yeah. Yeah. I That's use those dangerous. more than even my modular stuff because they're, they're so fast, too. Yeah. They play amazing with Ableton because, like, a lot of times I keep a lot of patterns of stuff in MIDI mm-hmm. in Ableton ready to go. And I'll just kind of throw them on. And uh, I have the fortune of having all my old gear MIDI fied. So my Jupiter 8 has a Kenton MIDI in it, my Mini Moke has a Kenton MIDI. So I I can grab one little clip in Ableton and send it off to like seven legendary synths. That's nice, you know, and just hear what comes back. And I'm like, it's really cool. Like, yeah. uh, you know, to be able to just kind of manipulate the arpeggio, the cutoffs, the swing, yeah. all that. And it's, it's super cool. What type of MIDI interface are you using to sync all those up?
0: Uh, just use the Mo2 stuff. Okay.
1: Yeah. Which yeah. is great. Uh, um, I, I mean, a lot of it's USB now, so it's like, right. um, i got a lot of those when i got into the electron stuff they make these little electron um one usb to midi interfaces they're called the tf1 or something it was cool. created for the machine drum. and they're the tightest midi boxes i've ever used in my life it's like the zero jitter and um they're probably 20 20 years old Maybe they're these crazy wow. little things. Yeah.
0: That's Pre- nice. Here's
1: one. Hold on. That's pretty ideal. You no know, one's yeah, sliding out. They're super weird looking. Man, uh, it looks old. Oh, no. So it has a USB. And it has a MIDI. Okay. Yeah. And pretty simple. I don't know what they put in these, but even if you look them up like on Craigslist or whatever, they're like 200 bucks a pop at least. Really, yeah, and all they do is seems high. One, oh no, it's crazy because now they're like discontinued. Yeah, but they have this thing called Turbo Mode, which works for electron machines, and it increases the MIDI, I guess, definition to ten times or twenty times speed of normal MIDI. And. Really? That seems fishy to me. I know it seems fishy, but I've actually like sent in stems from USB straight to like, you know, using the Apollo, using the SSL 2 plus, using that, using the Mo2, all that. I kid you not. There's like 32 samples worth of latency. Extra in everything but that little box. Really? Yes. I'm talking like at the minute level of like, if you press play on Ableton and it triggers a beat off of the machine drum or a beat off, or like an arpeggio off of you know a a, state, a sequential Pro 2 or something. Yeah. If you if you pass that same MIDI through that little thing and that same MIDI through anything else that exists. That one will be tighter. Wow, maybe that's why it's still
0: two hundred dollars in Craigslist or whatever. Maybe, man, so, makes sense.
1: Honestly, if, if you if you ever come across one, I, I, you don't need it because you don't have electron stuff, but it, or unless you do, but but I've also but I've used it like with the with the OctaTrack, which has USB, and it's still tighter. It's weird. Okay.
0: Oh. Well, I trust you. I trust your opinion.
1: Well, I just I got I got I gone like I got all scientific on it just to make sure I wasn't like, you know, snake oiling myself for I'm like, am I really going to pay that for that? Let me check. Oh yeah. That's fair.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like when you go in, like I went to buy some HDMI cables the other day. I had an emergency. I had to go to Best Buy, I couldn't wait to order it. And I walked yeah. in there and they're like, "Yeah, you want these gold plated, super high def, like HDMI cables, a hundred dollars for a six footer. And I'm like, what are we talking about here? Like this this is not going to make a huge difference. Like why are you trying, that is snake oil in my opinion. That is, yeah, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I'm not going to pay a hundred dollars for a six foot HDMI cable. Like, I'm not that
1: stupid. (laughs) No, no, the stuff that isn't snake oil is like, like the stories of all the old gear. And again, I'm dating yeah. myself, but it's it just has more vibe because like even the MPC three thousand, you know, it's like, yeah, so many people are saying like, well, why would you keep that? A, it's so expensive, and I overpaid for it anyway, probably. But like, why would you get that over the MPCX, which has everything, including connectivity to Loop Cloud, enabled Ableton yeah, and Link, and all this, you know, th- like unless you're kind of. Went through the hoops of like why certain old things are there, it yeah. doesn't really make sense. It's like yeah. they just see you as like, dude, you're just tied into your workflow and you're snake oiling yourself. And I bet you if you compared a WAV file from the MPCX, it would be fatter than your MPC. And it's not true. What is absolutely like that I've measured is that it's all about distortion, it's all about compression. You That's know. what they do. It's not. It's not that like new stuff sucks and old stuff is like so much cooler. It's that there's all these quirks that no algorithm can match. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. When I spoke to Roger Lin about the MPC three thousand, he was kind of vague and super not interested in what I was talking about. I kind of was like, we were talking about the Tempest at the time, and. He was all into the Tempest. And I'm like, yeah, the Tempest is cool. And I'm like, I gotta say, you know, I just got an MPC 3000 and I love it. And he's like, why? He goes, it's so limited compared to the Tempest. It's like, it's like, why? And I'm like, well, you know, it has that swing. And he goes, what swing? He goes, I just got one template in there. Like, the Tempest has like 100 swings and like, you know, DAWs have a thousand swings. Why are you so into your 3000? I'm like, wow. Roger Lin is saying this. And then I kind of started talking to him. And I was like, well, I don't know. But here's, here's the deal. When I start programming stuff, and then I add the hi-hats. And then I pass down the stems. My hi-hats are random. Meaning, some of them are rushed, and some of them are laid back. Brilliant. And I'm like, that doesn't exist when you hard-quantize something. No. Unless you have a groove template that only does that. Meaning every every fifth one will be rushed. Every seventh one will be laid back. Here's the thing. If you continually pass the same hi-hat, it will drift with time. And the ones that were pushing will be laid back. And he looked at me and he goes, ah, so you caught it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, we had a problem when I made that software for the uh, which we later corrected, but you must have the one that isn't like the forum OS. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, okay, we didn't have enough prolific on the machine. So once you started maxing out past four notes on the same downbeat, the machine had to choose to move something forward or backward by a nine nine sixty. Interesting. Tick. And I'm like, and it just chose wherever it goes, it's just mathematical. Meaning, if you have a snare and then you mute the snare, your hi-hat's going to shift different. But you won't really notice. You'll just hear that it feels good. Yeah. So I started noticing and I started taking elements out and I started putting elements into the MPC and I started passing down the hi-hats and I started noticing that different things hit in different areas different. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing, dude, that... I cannot like get over like that's the kind of thing that in my gut, yeah, if no. you gave me a blind test, there's something about vintage gear that does weird stuff like that that I can't get from modern gear. I just can't. Yeah, it's it, I'm not an old fart. It's not that I'm crusty. Like I've actually had people, I've had my assistant print stuff and send it to me with no names, out of order, and see if I could guess which one it is, and I always guess. Really? Like what was the real mini Moog versus what was like the UA mini and what was like the SEO 2 or the Behringer. there, and, and and whenever something came through, I'd be like, I'll tell you how I knew that was the mini Moog in the cutoff. Like it has this little snap that's a little pop. Just stuff yeah. like that. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, my brain, I'm a nerd, Matt. What can I say? It's like, hey, man, you're on the right
0: podcast for that, though. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of nerds that are dialed in right now. So, uh, so I get know, it. The... I get it. I think it's the imperfections that really make music more special, in my opinion, because yeah. everything is so locked into the grid. Everything is so perfectly synced and timed that like you go back to the humanistic nature of music and its progression. And when stuff is not perfectly tuned or when it's a little bit out of time, it adds almost that more of that human error kind of character to the track that I think yeah.
1: people want. I think that just sounds more real to us. And honestly, I think things are going in a great direction because if you if you think about it, everyone's implementing that into their algorithm. Like think of UAD, for example, right?
0: Yep. They started
1: out with their clean cut, like, okay, this is our 1176 and this is our LA-2A. And we made the best one, so trust us, this rocks. And now, every time there's a version 2 or a collection or whatever, what is it that they're actually selling? The first thing they said is, oh, we modeled the preamp nonlinear harmonic. In That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. What they basically mean is we modeled the stuff that was unmodelable, like the stuff that happened when like, well, why does it that happen when you're on ratio four and it doesn't happen on ratio two? Yeah. Like what's with this? they are starting to model the weirdness and things are getting cooler and cooler. And take drift, for example, drift. They're modeling the untuning of oscillators, the detuning of oscillators. Which happens to all my stuff when I don't service it, you know? So it's like, again, it's like obviously there's something to it. Yeah. That people will pay to get the mistake. Yeah.
0: That's you true. Know? That's 100% true. I was talking to the Shadow Hills guys. Um, was it Gear? It wasn't Gear Fest. I was talking to them at a convention and they were right next to the UAD guys. And I was, They were both, the UA guy and the Shadow guys were talking. I was talking to both of them and they were talking about when they were working together on the mastering compressor and how it took them so many tries to get it right or to get it close. And most of the modeling they were doing is trying to get those imperfections. It wasn't necessary. They wanted to sound just like it. They wanted
1: to have its own unique degraded character, which happens (laughs) over a period of time. And and that's the coolest part. That's the coolest part of mobs and things like that.
0: Yeah. Uh I'll let you go. I've I know we both probably have things to do today or Power this is, week. It's cool. Man, it's fun. It's been so fun. I'm so glad we got you on the podcast. But uh, before we go, I just want to ask you a couple quick things I think people would really like to know from somebody like you who has so much experience. Sure. What advice would you give to say upcoming artists or designers or producers based off of your experience? And it could be open-ended. Like what advice would you give to people who are up and coming,
1: wanting to work with artists or in film? Well, I mean, all of those kind of have different, I would say different paths. You said artists, designers, or producers. Well, I would say for producers, I think that what's really important nowadays is to be pretty fast and prolific with your turnout. You know, it's kind of ironic because there's so much out there and so many people are releasing tracks constantly Yeah, that you would think of like, well. You know, maybe I should take my time and make this a masterpiece and all that. And it's like, yes, it does need to be like top notch. But I think that what's important is that um, instead of like waiting so long to put out records, they should be pumping out singles and things like that on a constant basis and with a concept, if possible, meaning like, you know, Your sound is evolving, but it's very familiar. Like you have a certain brand, a certain sonic stamp in your sound. That's always what helped me out is that, you know, I wasn't always like the the DJ friendly guy when it came to remixes, but my remixes resonated with artists because to them, my song was kind of like a cooler up tempo version of the song. It's kind of like the song they wish they would have been in Mm. sometimes, And, you know, um, and so, you know, I would think that for anyone putting stuff out now, it's like, it's so important to really have one cohesive sonic quality to all of your stuff because it's so difficult when you're putting out, you know, year to year or things like that in one album sounds completely different from the next album and stuff like that because what ends up happening is that if you take artists for example that made it into film like take this the the stranger things guys right i know michael well michael stein and you know they got stranger things because the directors were fans of theirs, without them knowing that the directors were fans oh interesting um The best case scenario for anyone that wants to become a composer right now, or, and and it applies to being an artist or a producer is that you want to be on playlists where cool people are streaming your stuff, meaning like there's more and more evidence of that happening. Like, (laughs) um, Nathan McKinney, the guy that did HBO's, uh, industry, he got a call because He's on a label that has really cool acts and the, the showrunner for HBO industry was actually looking for artists in that in that vein. So he tuned in to playlists from this particular label mm. and then he happened to get they sent his music and he's like, oh this guy's my composer mm. you know it's happened to lots of guys basically yeah. like you don't know who's your fan out there that yeah. for their next movie. I mean, yes, David Fincher called Trent Reznor, but I mean, Trent Reznor's everyone loves Trent Reznor, you know, but it's it's that kind of thing. Sure. The more I hear podcasts about how a lot of these young composers, like, come literally out of nowhere. The Stranger Things guys were working at a music store in Austin when they got Stranger Things. Oh. Yes. But Survive had a track on The Guest, and The Guest was produced or had something to do with the guys that were writing Stranger Things at the time. So they heard the song. It was a sync placement. That's another thing. And And the more consistent you are in the case of those guys, they got a sync placement. The directors heard that track and were like, Oh my God, they need to be, we need to at least get them to interview as composers for Stranger Things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And uh, I keep hearing that over and over again. Yeah. I've heard a really good quote that ties
0: in with that. It's like, it's not necessarily who, you know, but who knows
1: you. Yeah. Now it's that you don't know who's listening or who's looking at your Instagram or, or things like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I've, I've had situations like that too. Not, not so much for film, but for like artists. I was working with a, a house artist called Samantha James, who was on own records and we did rise and, uh, did, uh, had a couple of Billboard number one dance singles, things like that, and lo and behold, I get a call from Donna Summers' management, and they were like, "Hey, you're the guy that's doing the Samantha James records, right? Well, Donna has that on, on the iPod, and she's like, she really loves this song and this song. You think you can send her something like that because she's working on a new album? Well, I was like, damn, sure, and Absolutely. honestly, I mean, we weren't. Yes, we had some success. Like, like Samantha, you know, has a pretty big following in that oh, yeah. world, of course. But it's not something where you're like, "Oh, do a leap as a fan," you know. Or, I mean, yeah. it's not something where you figure like Grammy winning legends are listening to niche deep house playlists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but they are.
0: Yeah, like, they might I never
1: know. Who knows? Especially you with
0: know? Spotify playlists or Discover Weekly or different things like that. You just never know who's going to pop up in your feed these days or who's yeah, so, you're going to pop up in.
1: Yeah. So like, if you have something that you really believe in, you really think is quality kind of don't wait till it's a record. That's, that's like the number one mistake I see in, in a yeah. lot of people. They just, you know, it's like that it doesn't matter anymore. Like the drip feed singles, share it, um, tour it if possible. Yeah. And just start promoting that sound.
0: Yeah. That's good advice. That's something we've talked about on the podcast too, previously about just being consistent, not being afraid to put yourself out there rather than, you know, holding on to all of these tracks, which a lot of people probably have a ton of tracks just sitting on their hard yeah. drives that are almost done. Just like yeah. finish it off and put it out into the world and be consistent. I liked where you're talking about, like having a solid brand, having that sound you mentioned. Yeah. And quality, obviously, is important.
1: That's super super important because that's the one thing that comes up from all these guys that, you know, that I love their music and they're getting these big scoring gigs. And it, it consistently is always that if you listen to the reason they got a certain scoring gig and the stuff they were putting out two, three years before that happened, it's all very consistent. And if you listen to the score they did, it sounds pretty much like those two years. Like if you listen mm-hmm. to Stranger Things and then you listen to Survive, what they were doing before Stranger Things, it's Stranger Things. yeah, mm. You know, it's like they were already doing yeah. it. Yeah. And like uh, even um, Son Lux, the guys that did everything everywhere all at once. That's good Same movie. exact situation. The Lee brothers or whoever were the, the directors called them. The agents didn't send them the music to get that gig. Really? Yeah. Because they tempt, they put some of their stuff when they were actually writing this, the script to that massive movie. They were listening to Son Lux. Really? They, I'm telling you, like sometimes it goes like, like when directors are fans of yours, Yeah. you're in. Like <laughs> it can be you against John Williams and you'll yeah. get it. That's cool. Yeah, just invite yeah. them over and let them play on the push. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem, right? You don't know who it is. Yeah. Um. But 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 it teaches you and you know. I mean, I've even taken. I'm I'm pretty terrible at releasing stuff because I'm always so busy and I don't really consider myself an artist. I always like releasing stuff with someone else as a vehicle. Yeah. But even myself, I've been like, if I really have a track that I've loved, like I will turn down gigs or whatever just to pump that out yeah. because it's it's so like true how like you know people are gonna be the new calling card is is them finding you yeah. you know that's yeah. that's true so with the calling card of them
0: finding you is there any quick tips as far as how you could help them discover you or get yourself out there other than just yeah releasing a song on distro
1: kid and hoping for the best well, the best thing you could do is probably get a sync placement. Damn. um Because that's what happened to a lot of these guys. Uh, yeah. And then do it for free, the sync placement. I know people are going to really? be like crucifying me. Wow. For saying this. But um that's generous. Well, it doesn't have to. Uh, this is just advice. Sure. But I'm saying, if you are somebody like, you know, there's a lot of talk about artists getting screwed by music supervisors and all that. It's... It's a very frustrating thing because I agree with it. Nobody should do anything for free. But at the same time, some of these low budget films and stuff like that truly are low budget. You think that just because it's going on a film, like, oh, they should at least give me a thousand bucks or whatever. But really honestly, a lot of times the big guys get most of the money, and then they sometimes they really are left with a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks for the sink. But, you, wow. but everybody out there, before you kill me, what you have to remember is that if you were to give a sync for free, for example, because, and I would only do it if you really, really believe in the project, meaning like somebody's doing an indie film, which is like the next, you know, like, like the next everything, everywhere, all at once or something killer like that. And they're yeah. like, look, you're unknown, kind of unsigned. You've got 2,000 monthly listeners. We don't have the budget because we're all booked up, but we love your song. Mm-hmm. If you want to give it to us, it's not for free. It's called the gratis license, which means you don't get paid up front for it, but they place it in the film and then you make residuals every time it streams from your PRO, either ASCAP or BMI. Yeah. Here's Here's why I think artists make mistakes when they're like, if if they don't give me something up front, it's a no, because if you were to turn down everything, everything, everywhere, all at once, for example, right? If you had 20 seconds of a track on that from your PRO alone, you'd probably already be banking around 22 to 25 grand per year. That'd be nice. Yeah. So if you really turned them down because the music supervisor was offering you a hundred bucks, it turned out to be a financial mistake. Yeah. If you could get those residuals. Yeah. Well, it's, but look, I worked on Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. And I did the Rick James track. And I I won't make this long, but this is a perfect example of how you never know. That track was another track that they temped and then the artist pulled out, and they were left with this movie, and they had to go to Sundance. And I had about a week to turn it around and make Super Freak work with the choreography. Well, really? honestly, I turned it down at first. I was like, "This is too stressful." The money was bad. Really, it was an indie film, like Super, like like when I saw Little Miss Sunshine, I was like, "This could like go straight to like streaming." Honestly, like. Why, why am I going to kill myself for this? I mean, but something in me was like, it's a good movie. Why not? It's cool. Yeah. It's challenging. Blah, blah, blah. I did it. And man, it's like probably one of the things that has gotten me the most remixes out of really? most. That yeah. that like ha- like having my name associated to, I mean, how many Oscars did it win? Like 10? Yeah. It's, having it's your name movie. associated with something massive, even if it wasn't like the score or whatever, yeah. it's, it's instantly a calling card for future sure. work. Yeah. So yes, I'm not saying give your music away for free, but I'm saying if you're in a situation where an opportunity comes, don't always look at the upfront C as the determining factor. that I want to phrase it like that. Yeah. Yeah, you that know? makes sense. That makes sense. I know
0: Matty Harris gave some similar advice and he's done mastering for Kelly Clarkson and a lot of other people. And he did a lot of free masters before his name yeah. started hitting some bigger charts. And then next thing you know, he's getting paid you know, 10 to 15 times more than what he was ever making in the yeah. beginning. Just because
1: of he had that credibility. Yeah. I'm also only talking about sync placement because there's a, there's a big difference. Don't ever give up your publishing for free. Don't ever give up your your song for free. Don't ever yeah. give the ownership up to a company or a producer or any. Anyway. The thing about sync placements is that it's a rental. You're renting your song. Meaning if you don't get any money up front, it's still your song. You sure. can still put it out on your album. Yeah. Everything's fine the worst that can happen is it didn't really go anywhere. The best that can happen is it becomes an absolute smash and you make 50 grand in 10 years. Yeah. And it it propels your name. It gives you something, you know, to be like, okay, cool. Well, you know, my song, blah, 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 is on this soundtrack. Okay, cool. That opens doors. Yeah. Especially in the film world. So, yeah.
0: You know, it's it's no, a toss-up. It makes perfect sense to me, man. For sure. You know, and... Yeah, like we, like I said, it's not always who you know, but who knows you. So if somebody sees your name in yeah. the credits and you worked on something, then it might hit you up. That could be your next paycheck for the next
1: few years. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mailbox money is is important. I I for for artists. I mean, I bet I, I'm sure everybody already knows that. Yeah, because everybody's you know sync placement it has become like the new getting signed. Yes, and it's true. You know, it's like the amount of money that you can make. Off of silly things is silly, you yeah. Know, like like things you never imagine. You're like, wow. If I would have turned that down, I'd be really sorry. Totally, yeah, <laughs> that's know? true.
0: Well, thanks, man. I, this is all really good advice. I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of people that this has been a really interesting, useful conversation, especially in the world of film, which I know is foreign to a lot of producers out there. So, this might hopefully inspire some of them to get more involved and maybe release some more tracks, maybe look more into the sync world and looking into composing and remixing. So, yeah, you've, you've done anything... some awesome things and like super oh, thanks, appreciate man. your
1: time and you hanging out with the podcast. And you're welcome back anytime. So, oh, thank you, man. Anytime. And if you have any questions or anything, you know, hit me if anyone wants to hit me up on social media or whatever. I was going to ask you, where's the best place for people to follow you? I'm pretty bad because I'm, I'm always busy but instagram is my favorite in terms of you know where i check and stuff like that so cool
0: well everybody there you heard it Uh, check out the links in the show notes if you want to follow sebastian aka roca sound and yeah man maybe we'll have you back in the future and if you're ever in denver hit me hit me up i will you'll take me skiing right yeah i will let's go actually (laughs) it's on the list this year i didn't get to go last year but this year for sure so you're welcome I love
1: veil Aspen, all that stuff is so killer. Helluride. Yeah, they're all beautiful, man. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Thank you so much, man. It was an an honor.
0: Dude, same. Likewise. I appreciate you. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you don't hate the podcast, please leave a five-star review, and you can do that on Spotify. Also, speaking of Spotify, if you want to interact with me and talk about this episode, share your thoughts, you can go to Spotify, go to this episode, and then you can leave a comment, tell me your thoughts, and all that good stuff. Check back on Tuesdays for new episodes, and make sure that you give Sebastian a follow. Check out the links in the show notes, and I will see you next time.